Hey everybody, thanks for hanging out with me for just a couple of minutes. Here, our focus is being better and healthier than yesterday. Are you better? Are you healthier than you were yesterday? Here, we don't compare ourselves to him or to her. We compare ourselves to who we were yesterday. Self-improvement has no end. Health has no finish line. There are lifelong journeys where we take it one day at a time, and here we do it together. So let's do this. Before I get into the main content, if you want to get in contact with me, email and Instagram are the best ways to get in contact. Email me at benpagedc at gmail.com and on Instagram, benpagedc. And if you listen to this, go to Instagram, tag me on the episode, and I'll tag you right back and we get to know each other. I love to get to know the community and I would love to get to know you. So let's get on to the main content. Welcome back to another episode of the Wellness Former Podcast, and I am bringing back a guest because our first conversation got me really intrigued because I've always liked uh, making my own bread, fermenting with with um, using the, the process of fermenting, but that's about it. That's all about it. That's pretty much all I knew about fermenting. I made true, I made a sauerkraut once too. I mean, but I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about all these other vegetables that it's not about, as he says, it's not about what we eat. It's about, it's how we eat it, how we prepare it. So, so Bill's back on the show. I am so, so excited to have him back on to talk about fermenting foods and certain foods and how we can do that so we can continue to improve our health and one of the most important ways is what we put into our bodies. So, Bill, I mean, I know this is the second time you've been on the show, but just a just a, just a quick introduction to all the new listeners, and then we'll, we'll jump into what we're going to talk about. And of course, I'll have the show notes to the first show, so you can go listen to Bill and our great conversation of how of how important what we eat is to our own health. So, thanks awesome. for coming on again, Bill. And yes, yeah, short introduction. We'll get into this. Yeah. You know, it is truly my pleasure to be back and, and back so soon. I really appreciate it because most of the time the conversation is left that, hey, vegetables are something we should be um, cognizant about, right? And, and and then we leave it there and, and then nobody follow. Not, a lot of people will follow up very quickly, at least as quickly as, as you have with, okay, so what do we do now? What do we do with our vegetables? So uh, very quickly, I am a prehistoric archaeologist and anthropologist. My work is focused on ancestral diets and indigenous and traditional diets around the world. And most importantly, using that information to understand how we can feed our our modern Stone Age bodies in the most nourishing, ethical, and sustainable way possible. And more recently, I've been trained as a chef. So fusing all of those things together, I think, is where the future of food really needs to go. Nice. So not only do you know it all, but you're actually doing it all. I mean, that's just beautiful. So one of the things that's really intrigued me, because we talked about the potato the last time you were on, and how over the thousands of years that we've been eating it it's been changed slightly but oh the people that ate potatoes at the very beginning their process was fermenting a potato and i've never even heard of that so what is the whole process how do you ferment potatoes (laughs) so let me say a couple words about the potatoes again for people who didn't hear earlier conversation and truly i forget how deep we actually got in that earlier conversation so potatoes it looks like we're domesticated uh, around 10,000 years ago in uh, the Lake Titicaca area of Bolivia and in and, 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 and a part of Peru. At the time of domestication, the, the wild ancestors to potatoes 
is incredibly dangerous, incredibly toxic. Like you eat it, you will get incredibly sick. And if you eat enough, you will die. But what we don't really uh, necessarily always understand is that many of those varieties of potatoes that were domesticated, right? You take the wild ancestor, you put it in a, a, a culturally uh, monitored and, and dealt with environment where it's tended it, it, it through selective pressure eventually genetically changes into a domesticated form. Even those domesticated forms, uh, especially early on, were in, still incredibly toxic. So it's not like going to the grocery store now or to the um, uh, you know the produce aisle and you say okay, all, all, or at least you falsely think all these foods are inherently safe for me. And we'll get more to, more to that in a little bit. But the potato and the people that first domesticated these early farmers looked at this potato and it was still incredibly toxic. So before they ate it, they had to do things to them to uh, to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. One of the ways was through fermentation. So the work I did in Bolivia and Peru, where I lived with an Aymara family, an ancient Aymara or indigenous Aymara family and an indigenous Quechua family in both Bolivia and Peru, they detoxified them in different ways. And my, my, the reason I went down there uh, was number one, to document some of these um, you know, dying ways, tra traditions of, of processing food, um, understand how they did it, but most importantly, to be able to take that information back and figure out ways of applying these traditional for, uh, you know, approaches to our modern food system. Because what we need to recognize is that through selective pressure and, and different types of farming and, 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 and uh, genetic mutations, right, over tens of 10,000 years, what we have in our American grocery store is a lot less toxic than these early versions, but they are still toxic and they still have the same toxins in them. Not a very big deal if you eat a couple of potatoes, but if you or somebody or your kids are, 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 are people who eat a large amount of potatoes, we really need to understand the best way to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. So the three the three ways that I studied is one was something called geophagy, uh, where you would intentionally eat earth or clay at the same time that you eat the potatoes. And if it's the right kind of clays, the clay will bind with the toxin in the potato. Put it when, it when it binds together, it's in a state our body doesn't recognize. So it passes through our body, but we still get the nutrition and the, and the, um, the pleasure of, of eating the potato. Um, that is not something that's weird. What's weird is that we don't do those kinds of things anymore. Geophagy or the intentional consumption of earth was a part of our diet for a very long time. It's the part of almost every animal on the planet's diet. Um, and the fact that we don't do it today is kind of strange. We could talk about more about that in a second. The other way is uh, making something called chuno, which, uh, which is where you take the potato and you you soak it in a river for months and months and months on end and it leaches and it ferments and then eventually you take it out we're on the altiplano the very high plateau of of bolivia where um you can then freeze dry the potato and and process it that way but the other way which is a part you're, you're interested in is the fermentation so in, in peru we made something called tokash which is we take the potatoes they would dig this incredibly huge pit in the ground i mean a big pit and fill it with potatoes incredibly toxic potatoes um, fill that pit with water so it's submerged lay some some rocks and things on top to keep the potatoes in an anaerobic environment without oxygen and allow it to ferment for a minimum of six months and then at that after that time they'd open the pit and take these uh, fermented potatoes out detoxify potatoes and make a lot of traditional dishes from it then but it is through that fermentation process that you take this potato, which is loaded with glycoalkaloids and lectins and all sorts of crazy toxins, 
um, and mitigate the, the issues with those toxins and make it as safe as possible. But the other cool thing that fermentation does is it pre-digests our food. It's, an, it's a natural biological process that allows our body to work less hard to get the nutrients from that food. And the other, you know, the other really cool benefits of fermentation is that it, makes, make, it changes the flavor, it changes the aroma, and it changes the texture of our food. And in most cases, in very pleasing ways. And in fact, the root of most of, um, uh, of the foods that we really enjoy when they're made properly is fermentation. I mean, the, the highest quality coffee in the world goes through a fermentation process. The highest quality chocolate in the world goes through a fermentation process. Beer, wine, spirit, all go through a fermentation process. Sauerkraut, pickles, all of those foods, real salami. I mean, real salami, salumi, you know, are, are fermented meat products when they're made properly. And it, you know, I've never found a culture in the world that didn't have fermentation at the core of its traditional diet. And for the potatoes, well, first of all, going back when you're saying eat dirt, I mean, we'll get back to the potato, but eating, it's funny because every time I pull out a vegetable, I usually just will clean off a little like, an, like a carrot and I'll usually just eat it as it is. And a lot of people will get me like, what are you doing? You're supposed to clean that first. It's like, I, I never really thought much about it, but uh, I, I always thought that it was never anything wrong about doing that. Well, I'd like to get back to that, but um, with the potatoes, uh, so what do we do with potatoes today then? So the not, the not so toxic potato, the potato that we, that we find in the supermarket, what's the best way to consume, consume those types of potatoes? Well, that's a great question. So the, the number one answer is, um, the first thing, the, the, I failed to mention this, the, for all the potatoes that we ate in South America, and I saw prepared, and except for one instance, they were always peeled always peeled. And if you think about the reason that plants have toxins, they create toxins in order to survive, reproduce viable offspring and what every species on the planet needs to do. And they do it by, by engaging in chemical warfare with the outside world. If you think about a, a potato, what we consider, uh, we call them underground storage organs, roots, corms, tubers, any of these um, parts of the plant that's under the ground, they are incredibly important to that, vitally important to the life of that plant. It's the storehouse for all the energy of that plant. And in a plant like a, a, a potato, you know, all the energy goes into it, uh, the top dies off, right? And that's the only thing that's still alive. You have to protect it. So if a plant is engaging in chemical warfare to survive, and if a root is so incredibly important to the survival of that plant, then you can imagine that barrier that skin of that root is the place where most of the toxins reside because they're warding off insects and predators and fungus and all of those things that could, that could potentially kill the plant. So the, every single potato I saw, whether they boiled it, fermented it, made tokesh, everything, except for one instance, they peeled the potato. So, and, and they knew exactly why. So this is the toxic part when we get rid of the, rid of of the peel. Now I know a lot of you are thinking, oh, I was always, you know, I brought up my whole life. To, that's the most nutritious part of the potato. Well, first off, that's not true. But what is true is it does have nutrition. I mean, the peel does have nutrients in it. But you, anytime we eat something, we have to balance the good with the bad. Just because it has nutrients in the case of a peel of a potato doesn't make it worth it to consume. The potential dangers of consuming a lot of potato peels outweigh any nutritional benefits you get from the potato. So I always, always peel the potato no matter what I'm doing with it. So that's number one. Number two, uh, take a good look at the potato. Um, if 
you see anything green or eyes starting to form on the potato, that is a good indication that the glycoalkaloid content, the toxin level of that potato is skyrocketing. It's, it was, it was poor, uh, stored poorly. Get rid of it. There are, and, and look it up, it's 100% true, people land in the hospital and get sick from potato poisoning every single year, even today. And in almost all cases, it's because they're eating potatoes that have started to turn green or started to sprout or started to, to, to you know, sprout or show their eyes. Get rid of them. It's not worth it. Don't try to like peel the green off and you're fine and look past the fact that there's some green into the flesh. I don't care how expensive the potato was. I don't care what's going on. You're literally poisoning your family if you're making something out of that food. So get rid of it. Now, beyond that, I would say before we even get into the fermentation, again, eat Think about these things sparingly. Just because a potato is a cheap food and just because it tastes good and just because it's filling doesn't mean we need to eat a lot of it. Those are not good indicators of, well, I should put that in my mouth and feed my family it every single week. So eat the potatoes sparingly. But when you do eat them, I truly believe that using some of these ancestral approaches can certainly help even in a modern kitchen. So you can ferment them. So the easiest way to ferment them is you take your potato, and put it in a 2% brine. So in other words, just take a mason jar, take your potato, peel it, obviously. When you peel it, you're exposing the inside to the outside air and it can start to turn brown. So the first thing I do is I always have a container of cold water in front of me. So as I peel the potato, as soon as it's peeled, I put it in the cold water, or put it in the water, which keeps all the oxygen out and it won't start to turn brown You know, until I finish all the potatoes. Then I take them out and I slice them into whatever the final product size is going to be. But when I cut it up, I'm increasing the surface area, decreasing the mass, and it will ferment. The, the effects of the fermentation will impact it more quickly, right? So if I'm going to make French fries, I chop them up into French fry sizes. If I want to make potato chips, I slice them up into potato chips. If all I want to do later on is make mashed potatoes, then I'll just chunk it up into, into some smaller pieces. Then take a mason jar or a container, glass is preferable, glaze ceramic is fine, stainless steel is okay. I wouldn't really use plastic that much and I definitely wouldn't want to use aluminum which will react with the acids when it ferments. So I take my mason jar and I put it on a scale and I you know, make it say zero, I, I tear it. And then I fill up all the potatoes into that jar and then fill it up with water. And the weight that's showing, um, showing me on the scale is the total weight of everything inside of that jar. You don't want to weigh the water. You don't want to weigh the potatoes. You want to weigh both of those together. So the entire contents inside of that jar, uh, whatever it is, let's say it's 100 grams. I take that number and multiply by 0 0.02. I want to find out what, well, 2 to 5%, somewhere in there. I want to find out the percentage of that. Um, and I'll talk about the difference in a minute. Somewhere between 2 and 5%. And that's how much salt I add. So I add that much salt, stir it around, and then I sit it somewhere on the counter and wait. 10 days uh, right now, this time of year, and if my kitchen's about 70 degrees, is fine. Um, if it's the middle of August, maybe a couple of days less, it'll start, you know, ferment a little bit more quickly. But once it's fermented, take it and the water is going to be nasty. I'm telling you, in most fermentation situations, if you're making sauerkraut or fermented carrots, the... Um, vegetable and the brine are both incredibly nutritious. I mean, the brine is full of probiotics as well. And some people just drink the sauerkraut juice and, you know, or have it along with it. But in this case, that, that's not it. These potatoes are incredibly toxic. And what we were doing through the fermentation is uh, fermenting some of the toxins out, but also leaching some of the toxins out of the potato. And they're in that water. That water is nasty. It's going to look funky. It's going to smell funky. Dump it out. 
take the potatoes, give them a few good, really good rinses with cold water, and then they're, they're absolutely ready to use. Um, in almost all cases, I ferment my vegetables with 2% salt. So if I'm making sauerkraut, I shred up my cabbage, fill the jar, and multiply the weight of that cabbage or the contents of that jar by 0 0.02, add that much salt, and I'm good to go. If I'm making something like a fermented carrot, same thing. I chop up the carrots, put them in the jar, add water, weigh the contents, the entire contents of the jar, multiply by 0 0.02, and I'm good to go. Uh, potatoes are a little different. 2% will work. I'm finding now that 5% is a little bit better. And by, you know, you, you end up salting the water when you um, make a uh, mashed potatoes and you end up salting the French fries and potato chips later on anyhow. So adding a little more salt in the beginning is better. It's, it's the, the extra salt is um, helping ward off any potential issues that can arise uh, until that fermentation really, really, really kicks in. So they, then you're good to go. And I'll say one quick word about potato chips and French fries before we, uh, before we pause and, and go on. You might think they're you know, junk foods. And the way that they're produced today, they are. They're loaded with toxins. They, you know, because they haven't done anything to potatoes. They have um, you know, potato skins on them as well. They haven't been fermented. And they're cooked in nasty industrial nut or seed oils. And one of the big dangers with potato chips and French fries is, the, is actually the production of a toxin that wasn't there in the beginning. It was produced through the cooking. If you take something that is full of starch and hit it real quick with, with high heat, like you do when you're frying, you uh, produce something called acrylamides. These are known cancer-causing compounds. If you pick up a bag of potato chips in California where they label everything, you'll even see on the back warning, you know, full of acrylamides and can known cancer-causing compounds and all this. That wasn't in the potato in the beginning. That was produced because you took a high starchy food and fried it and produced these acrylamides. When you, the cool thing about fermenting potatoes is not only are you detoxifying through the fermentation process and breaking it down and doing wonderful things, but you're also getting rid of a lot of the carbohydrates, a lot of the starches that are in the food because that's the food for the bacteria doing the fermentation. So at the end, by the time you cook it, by the time you fry it, by the time you make your potato chips, your French fries, you're starting with a lot less starches and your acrylamide production is a lot lower. So if you take and ferment a potato and make potato chips or ferment a potato and make French fries and fry it in high quality animal fat, like lard or tallow, you're actually producing a food that I would consider could be easily part of a healthy human diet. Wow, that is incredible. I would have never thought about that. It's so cool to hear all of that stuff because I love potatoes. <laughs> and, that's, and that's one of the things I have in my garden. I mean, I, I'm doing less and less of a lot of the vegetables I used to grow look because I'm learning so much about them, but I still plant quite a bit of tomato potatoes because we eat, eat potatoes, not a lot, but we do have a lot of potatoes. And so having that, having this ability, and of course, my listeners having this ability to know how to cook them. Oh, this, this is just super excites me. I can't wait to start fermenting potatoes. I would have never thought about fermenting potatoes until I heard you say it the last time we talked. And I was like, this is, I got to learn how to do this. So this is so cool. Do you do the same thing with carrots? I mean, do you think the same thing with all roots? So with carrots, you have, do you want, you have to peel, you have to peel those too. Like anything that's a root, you, you make sure you don't, you're not eating any of the, any of the, 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 the casing around the, the vegetable. I, I do now as much as I can. The potatoes are a must for me, uh, but and certainly there's different root vegetables where the the skin surrounding it is so tough you just automatically get it off anyhow. 
but I have started making sure uh, even things like carrots, I peel now um, and not as, you know, I certainly you don't need to be as scared and scared isn't the word respectful of carrots as you with, with potatoes, but it is just one other place in your diet that uh, you can enter toxins that are just unneeded. Um, and you know, again, it's not a very big deal if you eat a few potatoes every now and then, not, not a big deal, nothing to be that concerned about. But and carrots, not a big deal. But you, what we, what I want people to understand is that all plants have some level of toxin in them, and any little thing you do, like eating hyper seasonally or peeling your root vegetables or fermenting as many as you can, just helps reduce the overall toxic load you're taking into your body. And you know we're getting bombarded with toxins all the time. Now we certainly are, and, and rightly so, are paying attention to the toxins that come into industrial-made soaps and you know air fresheners and these candles that you know from whatever that have all these funky smells and whatever to them. And, and we should, in, in different color, our artificial dyes that we're putting in our food, we should pay attention to all of those things. But we also have to understand that toxins are also a part of the natural world. And just because it's natural and just because it's organic doesn't mean automatically entirely safe, right? There's still things we need to do. And I, I forget if we talked about it last time when we spoke, but you know, my, my head is buried in the past and it's you know, all these technologies that our ancestors developed to access food and make it as safe and nourishing as possible. Where, where, where animals are concerned, almost every technology created was about getting the animal, right? bows, arrows, rabbit sticks, atlatls, spears, those kind of things, you know, something to overcome our physical limitations and allow us to take an animal that's running or flying really fast and take it down. And then as soon as that animal's down um, and we have a sharp edge in our hand, we don't need any other technology to extract almost every bit of nutrition that that animal can provide. Right in front of us is a pile, and I, I don't mean this to sound crude, but when, you, when we've taken down an animal in front of us is a pile of incredible, safe, nutrient-dense, bioavailable nutrition with little work at all in front of us. As far as plants are concerned, up until the um, agricultural revolution, almost everywhere, obviously, a lot of work and technology went into to, to raising plants and harvesting and crops and all that. Um, up until that moment, almost every single technology regarding plants had to do with unlocking the nutrients that are buried inside of those plants to make them accessible to our bodies and most importantly making those plants safe so you know it, it's really a huge a huge difference there when you have a, a plant in front of you just consider is there something that i can do and most of it's incredibly easy right these <laughs> these our ancestors were, were and i said this before were living in caves and processing food with sticks and rocks and clay pots over an open fire these are incredibly easy things to do in your own kitchen. Is there something I can do to these vegetables to help make them safer for my family to eat and make the nutrients in them more available to my body? And the answer is, is yes. And fermentation is one of the easiest ones to do. There has never been a case ever reported. And, and, and uh, the, the fermentation guru, Sandor Katz, you know, did a lot of work here, ever of somebody being hospitalized from eating a fermented vegetable that, you know, something went wrong. I mean, it's just, it's that incredibly easy. If you're going to dip your toes in a fermentation, the safest, most easiest one to do to start with is vegetables. And it, any vegetable. I mean, I remember I did, I remember I did cabbage the first time and I didn't follow your, your type of brine. I put too much salt. And I remember the first, when we ate it, I invited my family over 
and I, and I cooked some chorizos and man, was mm. it salty. I was the only one that ate it, but I loved it because <laughs> I made it. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, a, a lot of times 2% salt is, is my standard period in, in, in almost all vegetable ferments. Um, but if you oversalt, and some people do, and some people do just because they're trying to be safer, right? Um, if you get a product that's oversalted, then you can soak it. I mean, you can get a lot of that salt out. So don't throw a batch of sauerkraut out because it takes too salty. You know, soak it in some water for a couple hours. It'll draw, you know, the, the really cool thing about salt, sugar does this a little bit too, but the really cool thing about salt is when you, when you put it into something, it will disperse and come at a equilibrium in that entire system. So even when I, with cheese, you know, when I make, there, there are certain types of cheese you make that you salt the cheese by just sprinkling salt on the outside of the cheese. And, you know, over time that salt just penetrates and everywhere on that piece of cheese has the same salt percentage. So if you take, and your sauerkraut's too salty and you soak it in a little bit of water, that water, it's looking for that equilibrium and that salt will take that entire system and it'll draw a lot of it right out of, right out of the cabbage. Do not throw it out. You've made an amazing food. So, you know, and it, and it took some work, right? But the really cool thing, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, it took two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. So uh, my, my, my sauerkraut, I do, I, you know, we're doing it here and I have a, an entire walk-in fridge dedicated to fermented vegetables. And um, we have it set at 62 degrees, which in my mind is the ideal fermentation temperature for, for, um, for vegetables. But don't let that stop you. I, if your kitchen is 55 degrees, well, 55 is a little cold, you'd be freezing. But if your kitchen is 70 degrees, it gets 80 degrees in August, you can still make incredibly nourishing and delicious ferments right on your counter. You don't need 62 degrees, but at 62 degrees, uh, and uh, 10 days, that's perfect. That's where I, I stop my sauerkraut in it. And it has the right amount balance of flavor and texture that, that I absolutely love. But here's some other really cool benefits about fermentation. You know, we're, we're living in a world now where so many, you know, we celebrate uh, foods being the same all over the world. Like you can be, you can have a hamburger in San Francisco and a hamburger in China and they, they taste the same. And for some reason, we're supposed to be, we think we're supposed to be celebrating that. Or you drink a Budweiser in Colorado or a Budweiser in Ireland and it tastes exactly the same. And oh my gosh, that's wonderful. It, it, I, don't get me wrong. It is a feat of science to be able to make food taste exactly the same in, in, in different places. But I don't think we should celebrate that. What we should celebrate is the sense of terroir, this word that we use in the wine world, right? The wine industry where different grapes and different growing conditions produce wine with different characteristics like a wine from argentina will always taste different than a wine from san francisco for a lot of uh, for a lot of different reasons that's awesome we should celebrate that now when you go back to traditional foods and traditional food processing like fermentation we're relying on trillions of in the case of black fermented vegetables bacteria in the case of sourdough bread bacteria and yeast right trillions of microorganisms that the populations of those and the specifics about those different populations vary from place to place. That's awesome. So the sauerkraut that you make in, you know, that I would make here in Chestertown, Maryland, and you would make where you live and somebody else makes somewhere, if we made it exactly the same, even with the same exact ingredients, there would be slight differences, right? And that's that terroir, that's that sense of place. That to me is absolutely beautiful. Now, there are people that would also say you should be eating for, you know, and they would list a whole bunch of reasons why you should be eating 
the foods that are produced in your area with those microorganisms because there's all kinds of health benefits to, to, to that too. And, and that, that may be the case. But to me, to know that, you know, I, I this is going to sound hokey, but, you know, I formed a, for 10 days, I formed a relationship with trillions of different bacteria and those bacteria did all the work. I may, I, you know, I controlled a couple things. You know, I shredded the cabbage and I controlled a little temperature maybe and I put it in the mason jar and kept it in an anaerobic environment. But for the most part, trillions of bacteria transformed my raw cabbage into something that's more delicious, that looks better, tastes better, has different texture, is safer and it's more nourishing than it was 10 days earlier. That's something that's, you know, to me, that's pretty cool. And that is so missing in our modern food system. I, like I said, going back to that tr the sauerkraut that I made, I mean, it was too salty, but I still loved it because it's something that I made and, and I, you well, made I, didn't, I, I didn't make it, but I helped the microorganisms make that for me. And, and even though it was too salty for everyone else, I ate it and I loved it. <laughs> it was so awesome. I want to ask you one more question about Sure. skins uh what about squashes like winter squashes are those skins mm -hmm. also do, do, those, do you prefer to to skin to take off the skins of the of the winter squashes or do you or do you think those are fine to eat I, listen i i am not the person to ask about that i don't know uh whether or not they are have any major toxicity thing that we need to be worried about. But I will tell you what I do. Um, I do both depending on, you know, sometimes I keep the skin on and sometimes I take it off. More about what the final texture of the, what I'm trying to make is. Uh, less about safety and more about maybe presentation and it kind of organic left the qualities of, of eating the food. So I don't know that answer, but sometimes I do keep them on. Because that's one of the things that I really love too, is I, we find a lot of winter squash and I've been told those are one of the, one of the vegetables that are, that are a lot safer, at least that's what I've been, that's what I've been reading. So, I, but I was just wanting to know about the skins too, because uh, a lot of times we think like the potato, we think the skin is so nutrient dense that we should be eating it, but it's, it's, it might have nutrition, but at the same time you're eating with all the tox, tox, toxins. So it's better just to not eat it. And lately I've been eating uh butternut squash without the skin but before mm. i always ate it with the skin so it's just a question of, of mine and see like where are we going with this <laughs> well it, you know th th this is a, this isn't always the case what i'm about to say and again i forget if we mentioned this last time when we spoke but it in absence of i'm sure it's easy to find out the answer to your question but in absence absence of uh, of some of this information because there's so much that hasn't been tested there's so much work that still needs to be done in our food system to understand everything from oxalate contents of certain plants and to you know toxins of butternut squash skins but I, I do think it's important for everybody to perhaps well let me share with you how i look at the plant world and 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 danger levels and, and safety levels if you if you think about what a plant is trying to do. A plant is trying to survive and reproduce viable offspring. So that plant wants to protect its roots. It wants to protect the core mechanisms of that plant that allow it to survive. So in most cases, those things are, are those parts of the plants are, you know, whether it be the root or the stalk or the leaves, those are the parts of the plant that are trying to keep things away from it, right? But the flowers and the fruits, the what we call lelochemicals, these 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 um, compounds, secondary compounds that plants produce, can uh, either attract or repel, right? Depending on what the plant's trying to do. So, in the they, it, when they make toxins, they're obviously repelling, keeping things away. 
but there's the obviously the plants need help from the outside world in order to successfully reproduce viable offspring. And that comes from cross from pollination, right, with the flowers, and also comes from spreading seeds. So in the case of flowers and fruits, and again, this isn't 100%, so I don't want people to go out there and just start eating any flower or fruit that they see. But in most cases, in flowers and fruits, plants are producing compounds that don't repel, they actually attract. They want to attract insects and pollinators to their flowers, right, with bright colors and, and, and beautiful smells, um, and sometimes really nice flavors. And the same thing with fruits. With fruits, they want the fruits to be eaten. That's why they smell good. That's why they taste good. That's why they're so full of sugar because they want animals to come eat these fruits. Now the seeds on the inside in most cases are toxic as heck because they're designed to withstand the digestive tract of the animal, right? The animal comes, eats the fruits, goes through the digestive tract. The animal has walked off and deposits those seeds in a pile of manure which is perfect for that plant to propagate and, and, and do its thing. So, you know, a, a, a squash is actually a fruit, right? That's, that's what it is. It's really not a vegetable. It's really a fruit. And it really, in my mind, falls under that category. My default answer would be that the skin and the flesh of the, of the, of the squash is probably absolutely fine because the plant isn't. And, and also, please also remember too, that it isn't that plant just has these things, right? A plant has developed something to repel or something to attract over millions of years of evolution and it's nutritionally expensive for that plant to produce it right there's no reason a plant is going to produce something that doesn't allow it to survive so it's not like it's just going to willy-nilly produce a, a toxin somewhere and it doesn't actually serve a purpose it's going to produce a toxin it's worked for that plant to produce that toxin um, it's going to be there for a reason and in most cases you know it, it's not 100 across the board there are berries that are poisonous uh, but there are just, I think that's an easy way to think about it. And, and it, yeah, and it makes complete sense. That's yeah, sort of makes, when it's easy to make sense, yeah, go with it for sure. And, and I can see that with, with, uh, with the, the skins of the squashes also. I mean, it's just probably there to protect the seeds more than anything. And that's why, because winter squashes, I mean, you can, those, those, sometimes those will last the whole, the whole season in your, yeah. in your, in your cellar and they'll still be good to go. You'll still be able to pull them out and, 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 and cook those. Uh, and one quick caveat with that though, I will say, especially with wild plants, the, um, the fruits, and this is, this is, I mean, this so speaks to evolutionary processes that, uh, that are just beautiful. In many cases, the fruit is not pleasant to eat or pleasant to taste until the seeds are actually ripe. Like it doesn't want that thing to be eaten until the seeds are ready to be, you know, dispersed somewhere else and produce new life. A great example is, is a native persimmon, where if you ate that before it's ready, it, it is highly astringent. You'll spit it out. You'll taste it for six, seven, eight hours. I mean, it's nasty if it's unripe. But when the seeds have developed and are mature and are ready to be spread, it turns into, transforms into one of my favorite fruit, fruits in the world. Oh, I can, yeah, now I, I could say it with squashes and melons. Oh my goodness. Uh, a cantaloupe is, yeah, it's totally different from a ripe to, to a halfway ripe cantaloupe. Is, the difference is incredible. Uh, I, I, well, now let's go back to that very first, what we talked about, um, the dirt and how, so what's the whole big thing about eating dirt and how does that help us? Because I do do that too. <laughs> and people look at me really yeah. weird when I do that. 
this, we, we live in such, as you know, a, a sterile, sanitized environment today that it is, that it is not healthy on any level. And many people are scrambling, including us, I think, to, um, to kind of get back to our roots and, and get away from things like hand sanitizer and antibiotics, which kill all the good bacteria, but also just get dirty. I mean, there's something amazing about bare feet in the mud and, and dirt on our vegetables that we shouldn't be too scared of. In fact, there are chefs right now, um, I write about this in, 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 um, in one of the chapters in the book, where there are chefs that are going to great lengths to actually cook and present their food in dirt. Um, so they actually take the vegetable and they, they prepare it and then they actually put it in dirt and, and bake it or they do things uh, which is I, you know some of it is kind of just this modern gastronomic sort of thing but there's some reality to a lot of it what it's, what's cool is if you look at um the animal world most animals eat dirt and they seek it out and they and including humans um and they do it for two main reasons one is because um of the extra minerals you'll get from consuming earth, right? And I'm talking about clean earth. You know, if you live in the middle of Manhattan right now, I don't know if I'd go in my backyard and just dig up the dirt and eat it. But, um, you know, earth, the right kind of earth in the right place that hasn't been, you know, um, modified or, or screwed up because of modern industry um, is, is, is the kind of thing I'm talking about. And what we see in the animal kingdom, including humans, especially in times of nutritional need or nutritional stress. So if there's, um, if there's a famine or uh, in, in women when they're pregnant or lactating and have increased nutritional needs, we see increased consumption of earth or dirt or clay for the minerals that you'll get from, from eating it. But the other reason, and this is across, across the animal kingdom as well, is because um, certain clays in earth will bind with toxins and will allow it to pass, the toxin to pass through our bodies without impacting our bodies. And that's you know, this case of, of using earth with, um, with potatoes. A couple other examples, we have uh, ethnographic examples in places like California where Native Americans would, would bake egg, egg corn bread, right? Egg corns have tannic acid um, and bake egg corn bread with clay or earth at the same time. And the earliest, we think it's the precursor to, to polenta in Sardinia, right, in Italy. It, this, it, they would make a special bread that had egg corn flour, ash, and clay in it. And, you know, obviously polenta, like we think about it today, is made from maize, and maize is actually a new world crop, right? It came from Mexico and didn't make it over to Italy until a few hundred years ago, several hundred years ago. So anything before that that was resembling polenta was made from something other than corn or maize. And they think this early bread in, in Sardinia was made, um, was, was a precursor to polenta. And they were using egg corn flour, but also using clay to, um, to bind with the, the tannic acid in, in the egg corns. So it's not uncommon to eat earth. And if, in fact, if you go on Amazon right now you, and, and just type in the words edible clay, a whole bunch of things will pop up. There are people around the world that are, that are still doing it today. Um, so there, there, there's something to it. And if, and if we're really thinking about trying to be as healthy as possible in our in our in our we're living in stone age bodies and facing a modern diet outside um if we're trying to be as healthy as possible then force yourself to and i'm talking to you i'm just talking to everyone. i think you should we should force ourselves to you know 
not put up these artificial barriers, right? Any barrier that we have to food, you know, this is, okay, this is food, this isn't food. I wouldn't even consider eating that. These are all modern cultural things because somebody told us that or we heard it somewhere it's because of an experience that we had for eating clay you wouldn't even consider it a food what is it that um you know stopping you from considering it a food think about it and i'm not saying everybody needs to go out there and eat a whole bunch of clay but think about pushing the limits of what you consider food because if we're really going to address modern issues that are diet related then um we're just scratching the surface of what we've been talking about today that's a beautiful way to end i mean I totally agree in how we should, we should at least try, at least give it a try. And, and my whole philosophy on food has changed so much where I don't even, I don't even look for the taste anymore. I just look for the fuel. Mm -hmm. I look for, I look for how is this fueling me to make me as healthy as possible. And the great thing about it is that the, the majority of the, the nutrient dense foods are, are so good. I mean, they're so, they're, they're so yeah. yummy. So it just, it just yeah. works. It just works out when you find all that, all the really nutrient dense foods. But I think that's a great way to end. I mean, I, I, I my second book is actually called playing in the dirt. And now I'm going to, I'm going to add eating a little bit dirt is also part of playing in the dirt. So don't forget that part. Eat a little bit of dirt. Like when you go out to your garden, pull out a carrot, you don't have to wash it with water, wash it with your hands, get all it, and then just go ahead and eat it. That's what I do. And I love it. And I, you really don't even taste the dirt. I mean, you, you taste the, the, the carrot and that's about it. So absolutely. Oh man, it just great things of how we're learning to better eat. And, and the coolest thing about it is we're learning from people that that weren't scientists, they weren't some crazy, they weren't super intelligent, they were just our ancestors learning how to eat. And then that's how we're learning today. And I think that's so special. We don't, um, anyone can do it. It doesn't have to be some special uh, thing after your name. Anyone can learn these things and put this into their, into their, into their, and I guess we can call it diets and, and be as healthy as possible. And I'm learning, you're helping me learn. And these are all great things that help us become as healthy as possible. Um, be before I let you go, Bill, I mean, so again, how can people get in contact with you? Because your stuff is helping so many people. And I want as many people to, to learn how to eat properly, because it's such an important part of our lives. How can they get to know you? No, thank you again for the opportunity to talk with you. Um, I love the work that you're doing and I love supporting it. So um, and they can, people can find out more information about what we're doing and, and, and really uh, follow the kinds of um, approaches we've talked about today in, in a couple of different ways. Um, my book is out called Eat Like a Human, Nourishing Foods and Ancient Ways of Cooking to Revolutionize Your Health. And that's available online on Audible in Barnes and Noble bookstores, you know, anywhere that you get a major supplier of books. Uh, we also have uh, several websites. So eatlikeahuman.com is the, the uh, nonprofit side of the work me and my wife, Christina, are doing. That's part of the Eastern Shore Food Lab. And our storefront and foodery is called the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. It's located here in Chestertown, Maryland. And you can find out information about that at modernstoneagekitchen.com. And finally, I just wanted to put a quick plug in because I'm super excited about this. We are launching a class 
Um, on February 1st, it's virtual. It'll meet for 10 weeks on Tuesday nights, and we are going through the book chapter by chapter, um, doing behind the scenes stories. We're bringing people you, throughout the book. You meet people from all over the world. We're bringing a lot of those people on for live uh, live Zooms to talk to. And the book is chock full of 75 recipes to put all these things into practice. And we'll end each session with uh, some cooking demos. Um, and you can find out more about that on both of those websites. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that on Instagram, how you're about to start that. That, that, is, that. that is so cool. I think that is going to be such an awesome opportunity. So guys, so listeners, go get to know him and, and get, on, get in on that because what we eat is how we're going to be healthy. So again, thanks for coming on, Bill. Just a great time chatting with you. My pleasure. So good to see you. I sure hope you liked that episode as much as I did with Dr. Bill, uh, that was an excellent episode. And again, me continue to learning and hopefully you're learning with me. Remember, this is a grassroots movement. This grows because we as individuals get the word out one person at a time. So a great way to get the word out is by leaving a review of this podcast. If you haven't yet left a review, go to iTunes, type in the Wellness Farmer podcast. And at the bottom of the page, there's a button where you can rate and review this podcast. And that helps this us move forward quite a bit. Again, if you haven't joined my email list, if you join it, you'll never miss an episode. You'll also get a free book of mine called Earth and Us. Heal naturally, absolutely free, just by signing, just by just by putting your email in there. Again, buying my books for yourself or others is a great way to support and get the word out. Support me and get the word out at the same time. So, giving plan in the dirt, the four pillars of health, and a short ebook called Mental Well-Being Made Simple are all available on my webpage, and the first two are available on Amazon. And if you're in the States, I'm going to make it even easier to give my books as a gift to your loved ones so we can get the word out. So you're listening to this offer. If you buy two or more books from my website using the code GIFT, you'll get each book 35% off of each book. So get yours today at my website, pastelsweatherthefarm.com. And finally, join my membership where we go so much more deeper into how we bring the garden and our connection to nature and earth into the forefront of our journey for greater health and well-being. The price is incredibly reduced right now, but starting January 31st, I will increase the price by 50%. So right now, you are getting a 50% discount on membership locked in for the rest of your life. Go to pastorswebinarsforum.com slash subscription, and I hope to talk to you very soon, personally.